0: And it's not like the city. In the city, you know, the summers are pretty chill, restaurants close, we've just done the biggest three months of our lives and just, you know, feeling really good about the momentum and the feedback we're getting and and then two weeks later,
1: gone. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Throughout the series, we've spoken to professionals in the big cities or those running small regional restaurants heavily impacted by the pandemic. But what has life been like in the large regional centres that have a huge local community and rely on a swell of tourist trade in normal circumstances? Jason Saxby is the head chef of Rays on Watergoes in Byron Bay. Jason, how are you going?
0: Good, Huck, how are you?
1: Good, mate. Thanks for joining us. What's it been like during the pandemic in Byron?
0: Oh, look, it started off, so it was a little bit. I think everyone was just a little bit fearful. It was a little bit crazy. And and then I don't know, life just seemed to just tick on. People kept surfing. There was still a lot of people around. It was just this little bubble of of I think its own little environment. And there was still tourists and you know, it was a completely different experience from what anyone else throughout the country I was I was speaking to was experiencing. So it's been it's been a unique experience, but at the same time, I can't say it's all been bad. Um, certainly at the start it was, it was bad. And then, you know, as soon as the job keeper kicked in and we had a little bit more idea about, you know, what we could do for our staff. Um, I know we saw the optimism. We saw, we saw the positivity throughout the people, the community. And you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a Byron in winter, but it's a magical place. So it's been it's been interesting to say the least.
1: Well, certainly those in the food industry have been affected more so than other industries. Uh, particularly if you're talking restaurants, and I guess you would have felt that. And yet, the environment you're in by the sounds of it, didn't feel like a pandemic was going on. What did it feel like at that time when the restaurant was kind of forced into closure and yet society kind of felt like it was normal?
0: A bit unfair but at the same time I completely understood and maybe just thought maybe more could have been done for, for you know, not necessarily support but circumstances where, you know, you go into Byron and you'll go to a little boutique clothes store and there's people everywhere. And then you'll go down the street and there's people everywhere and there's you know groups of people gathering and all that. And then, yeah, at the restaurant, we aren't allowed to do what we do every day, even though we could offer a completely controlled and safe environment, as far as what the restrictions were, were saying, but it was, there was nothing we could do about it. It was, it was out of our hands completely.
1: Your restaurant is um, pitched above sort of everyday eats. It's um, more towards a finer dining sort of offering. Well, what's been the impact on you guys because of uh, a lack of tourists perhaps than, than normal?
0: Um, look, it is – we probably can break it down into different phases because, you know, it's not been the one situation throughout the whole ep- epidemic. You know, like you've got the pre-COVID where – the restrictions started coming in, we were massively impacted by that. Obviously, we are in a massive tourist destination and we're within that, we're a a boutique hotel, a high-end boutique hotel. So the cancellations, we pretty much went from being completely booked for the year to be completely unbooked, like zero. And through that, and that was within days, so obviously there's we don't have automated systems where everything's, you know, we're, we're not a big corporation. We have two people down in the office just having to field all of these calls and, and you know, try to rebook dates for a, a guesstimation of when norm, normality would, would come back. And, and, that's, and then the restaurant, obviously, just the restaurant was just a complete wipeout. But it's been really weird for us because the hotel never actually had to close. The restrictions never filtered through to the actual hotel just by distinction it we just lost all of our bookings because no one could travel or no one wanted to travel and and it was just one of those weird things where there was the odd booking here or there that when we made the decision to close we obviously had to um cancel their reservations or their, their stay with us but beyond that it's 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 been really weird because there's been we're such a different business that we are we're a hotel with a restaurant rather than a restaurant with rooms. So the hotel was always sort of what made Ray's Rays. And the restaurant was just really gaining momentum in terms of of making a name for itself outside of Byron. And, and yeah, it was just back backtracking and trying to work out what, what the priority was. And, you know, obviously that pre-COVID stage, no one knew anything every day would come in with a new set of rules, a new set of guidelines from the morning briefing. I had a tape measure in my back pocket literally every single day, <laughs> just measuring tables. And then it got to the point of measuring the whole restaurant. So, you know, we don't have a square restaurant. It's quite, you know, there's little nooks and crannies everywhere. Measuring the square meterage, like it just got to the point where we just couldn't work out what was going on. And then, you know, you had that week of that, maybe two weeks of that, and then, you know, we've got 24 hours notice essentially to to shut down and stop operations of a 60-staff uh, team across, you know, three different departments if you count housekeeping, restaurant and hotel. It's, a, yeah, it's a big operation to just stop. And then you've got the the phase after that, which was, you know, pre pre-job seeker where everyone's panicking, you know. We we employ a lot of international um, staff, predominantly international staff, who, you know, we, we couldn't give them any answers on the day, you know. Like the general manager, Francesca, sat down with each and every single staff member individually. Um, I joined her for all the food and beverage people and the department heads joined for their departments. And, you know, just had to tell them pretty much that as of Monday there was there was no work and there was no business and we didn't know when or how or what anything was. And of like when we're, we're not alone in that. Every single establishment um throughout the country had to go through that same thing. So I don't think we're unique in that, but I can vouch for everyone else that's been on one of these episodes that said that it was the worst day of their career. I can vouch for that. It makes you feel pretty pretty crappy when you're looking at people that have given you their everything for, you know, a, a year of just solid work, not taking time off because of the momentum we're gaining and we are just come off the back of a, a Byron summer, which, you know, it's a whole beast of its own because there is just a lot of people around. And it's not like the city. In the city, you know, the summers are pretty chill, restaurants close, we've just done the biggest three months of our lives and just, you know, Feeling really good about the, mem- the 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 momentum and the feedback we're getting, and and then just sit them down two weeks later, after just telling them, you know, that's the end of the the really busy season. You know, you guys did amazing, but we're still we're still booked out for the foreseeable future. And like summer is continuing, and then two weeks later, gone. So really, yeah, that was a challenge.
1: As the restaurant opened up again. What, what opportunities arose for bringing some of those staff back and and what sort of business model did the restaurant move into?
0: Um, well, so we have um, obviously the, the benefit of being a hotel. So uh, we were very fortunate um, that our owners, I think, are in a position where they could help rather than just paying staff obviously to do nothing. This was, again, just before job seeker had kicked in, um, they were discussing about isolating, they're from Melbourne, so, you know, they probably wanted to get out of the city as well, um, about isolating within the hotel. Um, they've got quite a large family, so the family would take up the whole hotel and it's a win-win because they could pay a, a certain amount of staff to, to, to basically operate the hotel and, um, and their family would be cared for with food and you know housekeeping and you know like it it really was a, an amazing gesture and I feel very blessed that I I'm one of the fortunate ones that gets to work within a company that was able to to help their staff um, at the same time they got amazing food every day and they got amazing service you know like it was <laughs> it was a, a great time a win win yeah was a win yeah, win and then when JobKeeper kicked in then we sort of switched the people that were working to actually give some people that weren't eligible for JobKeeper or JobSeeker a little bit of work rather than just paying, you know, the heads of departments to, you know, to look after people or, you know, the, the key staff. We sort of stepped aside and let some of the, the guys that were not eligible for anything to to take over those roles and that went on for, you know, five, six weeks I think in total. Maybe even a little bit more. Um, I stepped aside because we were having our second child in May, so it it actually ended up being a blessing in disguise because, you know, I've been head chef for nearly nine years now, I think. And holidays just aren't holidays when, when you're, you know, in charge. It it's always emails, it's always phone calls, it's always still management meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So for the first time in my, you know, senior career. I was able to to switch my phone off and play with my son wholeheartedly for days. And, you know, and then when Arlo was born, it was, you know, really hands-on. You know, it was it – was, I cannot take that back, you know what I mean? Like these are, these are circumstances that just don't happen. I couldn't plan. I was planning on having two weeks off and then straight back to work, you know. And I ended up having a month off after Arlo was born and, and like a real month off. So I can't, you know, I can't say it's all been negative um, and, and then I'd leave to get me through. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't really suffer too much as a family. If anything, we kind of benefited. Obviously, at the start, there was that stress and panic of if I lost my job, how would we survive? You know, my wife was about to have a baby. We had just settled on our land up here. So we had just paid our deposit and paid a a draftsman to draw house plans and submit to council so we were just out of pocket you know 70k of our life savings that took us a lot of years to save up you know like i'm a chef my wife's a nurse um that was our life savings we just literally at the end of february handed it all over and then at the end of march i may not have an income and we're you know staring down the barrel of of rent and mortgage every week and you know Again, this was before anything was sort of offered up as to assistance or anything, and there was panic, and you know, about to have a baby, there was a lot of stress. We're like, do we sell the car? Do we do this? You know, just to give us that cushion. And luckily, we we held out because of the the way the the my employers sort of handled that initial process, and it ended up being being not too bad for us personally, but just obviously the the toll the business takes. In terms of you know restarting essentially from scratch has been has been hard.
1: You just sort of mentioned that you know it's been about nine years that you've been a head chef of various venues, and you never really got a holiday. And when you did have one, you still attached to the to the job. But this period of time has given you some some time out and um, a lot of time with the family. Has it changed the way you will have a work life balance moving forward? Having that glimpse and that window into that sort of life with your family?
0: Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think my my nearly four year old son wouldn't let me go back to work in the way I was, even if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> like I can say, obviously, restarting it was a lot of hard work. Um, but I, I can honestly say the business in which I am now is I'm very fortunate that I do have work life balance. We have been well. I've been blessed with the ability to create a, a roster and a kitchen environment that is naturally, you know, very positive to work-life balance. So I'm in Byron Bay. I can't stop people from surfing as much as I would like to. Uh, people don't move to Byron Bay to do <laughs> 90 hours a week in a kitchen, like you know they might in the city. Um, and even that, you know, the industry is changing these days, isn't it? So um, we were already sort of you know, apart from the extra work that I put in to try to really, you know, lift standards and sort of make a name for myself in Byron Bay and, you know, take a restaurant that's 25 years old and and try to reinvent it into the new era with new owners and new managers and, and everything like that. It's a, It was a lot of personal work, but at the same time, it wasn't a lot of physical work, it was more a lot of mental work that I could do at home and stuff like that. So, I was already in this sort of nice balance of you know you know working fifty fifty so it was it was it was kind of good, you know I was doing less hours than I would have in the city, but you know maybe more at home, which you know is is not a bad thing. I can't complain about that then of course, then when we reopened we we took that opportunity to make what we do better. I think that downtime really really just highlighted a few things that were working or weren't working, Um, highlighted the local community through, you know, supporting it. We're already using a lot of local suppliers, but I think as, you know, big food companies really stopped producing or stopped sending or stopped caring, um, it was always those little local guys that were there willing to drop off a last-minute delivery or, you know, willing to grow something that maybe you can't get. Um, and it just kind of cemented that that's the right path forward. So it's changed more what we do now um, for the, for the good. But also since we reopened, like Byron's having the winter of its life. Like I've never seen more people in this in this area purely because they can't go anywhere else. So it's. Like now, like it is it is booming up here. It is really, you know, there's people that would normally be in Greece or Spain or, you know, Positano and they can't go there. So they're deciding to come as far north in New South Wales as they can. Um, and luckily, yeah, Rays is one of those, um, I think, places and buildings that really just attracts people, um, it has that sort of, coastal sort of italian slash spanish mediterranean feel so i think it's offering that escape from from reality um so we've been very blessed in that you know i think since reopening our business model you know albeit is a little bit tighter and you know we're doing a few less covers you know we just had to separate in the seatings and you know we're we're juggling things like every other restaurant is but it's been the opposite for us where we're finding that, you know, we we have a massive wait list of, of people that want to dine with us that can't. Our hotel instantly booked back up for the rest of the year. Like I think we've got a few spare nights here and there. Um, and we just had this boom. And, you know, at the start when we're doing 10 covers, we're doing degustation only. And, you know, as were most businesses or are most businesses still to this day, Um and that was great, you know. I I don't I don't enjoy doing the one thing over and over, so I've got to be bored. But it was still nice to be able to focus on quality and you know offer those ten people per seating this amazing experience where they're all guaranteed a window table. Which you know, if you've ever dined at a at a restaurant with uh, ocean views, it's you know the food always tastes better uh, tastes worse at the back of the restaurant. You know, something's always wrong with something when you're on the the end table. Um, So to offer people the premium experience that you just can't guarantee on a day-to-day basis was amazing for us to sort of, you know, show people the premium side of what we do where, you know, a a place like Ray's, sometimes you attract people that just want an ocean view and aren't necessarily, you know, too involved in whether you are plastic free or whether you use organic produce or whatever There you know, like you've got to take the punches as they come. Um, and I think post COVID, or well, you know, it's not post really now, is it? But you know, post reopening, um, it's just kind of separated the crowd a little bit, and or maybe people are just more appreciative to be out. That the 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 vibe in the restaurant and the feedback from customers and the enjoyment of customers is just amplified, I think, because you know, six six weeks at home eating you know roast chicken and sourdough, everyone ate sourdough. I'm I swear. That was our national food for about six weeks. Um, so I think people, people are really grateful to get out and, and, you know, eat food that's prepared, you know, different to what you would prepare yourself. And we've had the opposite effect where, you know, I've heard a lot of people on this show say that people want comforting food and they're going to switch and they're going to tone it back a bit. We had the opposite where people were ordering the truffles. People wanted the really nice bottles of wine, People wanted to experience something that they hadn't experienced in months, and you know we're we're coming to raise for that. So that's sort of it's changed what we do now is where we're like, well, if we're the premium restaurant in Byron, you know whether we want to be or not, um, we people view it as that. So I think we're it's giving us a little bit more confidence to say, well, maybe we don't have to cater for that, you know. of people that come just for the view and to take a photo in front of the sign, you know, like maybe we can be that extra step up and really polish what we do and offer a great experience for everyone.
1: Coming up after the break, Jason reveals the chefs that changed his life and tells us why Italian food is so important to him.
0: I, I absolutely love it, but I'm not Italian, which gives me that, I think, two degrees of separation where I don't feel bound by rules and traditions and you know this old school thought that you can't do that because that you know that isn't how it's done. I was cutting off the hocks and I was just like these are stunning. The marbling and the texture and the colour was just you know it gets you excited to use and cook with those products because it looks so good.
1: The Crackling is the latest podcast from Deep in the Weeds where we take you behind the scenes into the kitchens of Australia's best chefs.
0: If you do the kind of double cook with the spiking, it's crunchy, but like a honeycomb almost, like
1: like glass, yeah. (laughs) And onto the farms of our nation's best producers.
0: Somebody came along and said, well, there's this opportunity back in Victoria and it was pig farming. That's sort of how we got into it. And it's been fantastic.
1: The stories, the passion, produce it was a
0: real life-changing moment for me to to see you know the respect of of an animal that is so deep and such a part of a culture
1: the crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with porkstar listen and subscribe to the crackling now on your favorite podcast app you've worked in some pretty extraordinary restaurants and Um, you've also got a really strong Italian sort of backbone with your cooking, you know, you've worked at Pillu, and I think we met when you were at Russo and Russo sort of making a name for yourself there. Um, but you do, you're not Italian, but, um, what sort of food are you doing there and and why does Italian sort of weave through your food so much?
0: Um, yeah, look, I think I'm, I'm from Bathurst, um, I'm sure you've been to bathurst. Everyone's been to bathurst at least once, <laughs> usually, usually for a race or or driving through to get somewhere better. Um, I, I grew up in regional Australia, and I'm from I'm from housing commission. Like my mum, single mum, four boys. I'm the youngest. We grew up in in what I would consider a very poor family in a very poor area. So my first foot inside a restaurant was when I was sixteen or seventeen. I was taking my girlfriend out for a date, and we went to um, a schnitzel restaurant in Bathurst. Uh, as amazing as that sounds, <laughs> um, and and that was my first ever restaurant experience. Like, n- n- not even kidding. Like, there was there was no food upbringing for me whatsoever, and um, th- there was there was no notable experience then either. Don't don't worry. But um, I was actually I was in high school, and and um, I was doing hospitality because my mum told me I should learn how to cook because girls like men that can cook. Sound advice, absolutely sound advice. I still live by that to this day. Um, And I was going to be an architect, you know, anything to sort of improve my life choices. I love designing and creating and sort of building things. Um, Went down the road of architecture sort of at the end of year 12, my school offered a course where you could sort of do industrial design and technology as an extra subject and I did it and just realized I hated sitting down and sitting still and being inside all the time just sitting at a desk um, but loved the design and creativity but didn't think too much of it and then graduated high school in Bathurst. I got my HSC. I was the first one in my family to get my HSC because I really I, I felt I needed to do better and I really wanted to, to do better so I pushed myself to get my HSC and then I still end up in the kitchen, so, you know, <laughs> whatever. But um, I think I think that drive to get me out of Bathurst has sort of set my path because I was always looking elsewhere for inspiration. I was looking for that next step and um, moved to city and instantly started working for Alessandro Pavoni, who I credit for, you know, actually teaching me how to cook. Uh, I, I, th- I thought I knew how to cook when I got to Sydney, but... He, very quickly, within about 12 hours, learned I knew absolutely nothing. And you've seen Alessandro. He's, he's not a small, you know, friendly-looking character. So, you know, you, you took what he said seriously. You took it very seriously. Um, and, yeah, and that was it. And then he sort of, he's very passionate about Italian cuisine, you um, know, in, in a modern sense. So it was really good to see that Italian food and that rustic sort of pasta that, that you know, I always associated Italian food with being executed in a very modern, technically sound and elegant, refined way. So that was my introduction into Italian food. And then after about a year and a half, he um, was planning on leaving the Hyatt and decided that I should go before he left and go work for his um, mate Giovanni up in the northern beaches and I you know I'd never heard of Pillou and before sort of you know this this last six months and then I just saw this building and I just fell in love and then fell in love with Giovanni's passion for Sardinia and the regionality and then again learned that I knew nothing about Italian food and had to start again um and so yeah the first four years of me being in sydney three and a half years of me being in sydney was italian food um and then obviously i dreamed of bigger and better things went to key won the jp award and then and then went overseas and then you know didn't didn't think about italian food for a couple of years Um, but then i don't know it just was always there it was always i think when you've had it drilled into you and you know you've spent so much time cooking it and immersing yourself in that culture because you can't You can't really cook Italian food in a in an Italian restaurant without immersing yourself in that culture. It's it's too infectious, and the people that run those restaurants are too passionate that they won't let you just rock up to work, cook, and then leave. It's um yeah. So that was always it was always there, and then yeah, it just burst out of the seams when I got to got back to Australia. I couldn't couldn't resist.
1: How would you describe your interpretation of Italian cuisine? Like, how do you marry um, pasta shapes with sauces, or create spins on traditional dishes without ruining the traditional dishes? Oh, look at who you
0: Speak to if you if you speak to a really traditional Italianist, I probably am ruining their food. But <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I'm 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 an Aussie. I'm very proud of uh, of of where I've come from and and the ingredients that this country has. Um, without going on a rampage right now and boring everyone, but there is some amazing ingredients here. Um, maybe not a, an amazing food history that go that dates back, you know, beyond beyond you know what we've been told is is our food heritage. Um, you know, we're starting to look into that deeper and deeper now as a people, thanks to you know people like Ben Shuri and Jock, who are really you know bringing that into restaurants. But it's um it's just what i what i love to eat and sort of the passion i have for italian food and culture and the 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 knowledge i suppose i have cuz i have spent now 10 of my 15 years cooking in italian no 11 now cuz got raised so 11 years of my 16 years cooking in italian restaurants um i i absolutely love it but i'm not italian which gives me that i think degrees of separation where i don't feel bound by rules and traditions and you know this old school thought that you can't do that because that you know that isn't how it's done that no one can give a reason as to why you can't put parmesan with fish no one can give a reason it's just not done so i'm not bound by those traditions so i don't mind you know respectfully taking the piss a little bit and you know i'll use some some local ingredients you know like I don't even restrict myself to Australian. Like you know, I, I use Boonluck and Palisa is you know, as you know, of Thai heritage. She grows a lot of uh, Asian produce that I use because it's local, it's very good quality, um, and I get it the pick that the, the date's picked out of the soil. So I'd be silly to not use you know Chinese broccoli and these other things that you know are, are so similar, and that I can put them in an Italian-ish dish. And, and it feels almost natural because I'm just replacing broccoli, you know. So it's always done, the, the, what I love to cook is always done with respect and with a, a certain amount of care to not overstep the mark and to not, you know, take the piss out of, you know, thousands of years of culture and heritage. But at the same time, I don't feel bound to those traditions and laws. I, I really feel comfortable taking Australian ingredients, you know, like I live in the Northern Rivers and this area is just the epicentre of amazing produce. So like the the climate here, the soil here, you know, it's where Davidson plums come from, it's where macadamia's come from, it's where finger limes come from, bunion nuts, like all these things come from this region. So it would be stupid and I think irrespectful of me to overlook those ingredients. I won't, you know get on a drum and bang that that's all I use or anything like that but it is it is I think very respectful to this region and the the community and the growers in this region to use that produce and to try to find ways to you know add it to Italian pastas without being really insulting
1: (laughs) can you give us an example of a dish that may have started from inspiration from a traditional dish but you've done a modern interpretation of it
0: uh, yeah, look, on the menu right now, it's actually uh, tomorrow is its last day on the menu, unfortunately, because I will not be getting any more mullet this year. Um, but I've got a carbonara on the menu at the moment that is a completely seafood-based carbonara. In itself is nothing new, you know. Um, there's there's versions of seafood carbonara spotted around the world in, in fine dining restaurants here and there. But I really just sort of looked at uh, produce that I could get sustainability also plays a big part in it um, and mullet this is like this is the best area for mullet um, a lot of the the mullet that's harvested here is taken just for the the roe, which is sent to sardinia and you know um sydney and all these other places to make the botaga so the mullet is almost looked at as the byproduct of the botaga so um, it started years ago at Pilu. I was speaking to fishermen about trying to get them to, you know, respect the mullet and to treat it well and to send it to me down at Pilu. And we put on a dish at Pilu, like I'm pretty sure a two-hour restaurant hasn't served mullet for a while. Um, and, and that's when it sort of started, when, when you can get these fish that are often talked about as bait fish or, you know, waste fish sent pet food or exported somewhere. And you get someone to really treat them with respect and care and then you really treat them with respect and care. It really does elevate that, that fish into premium fish. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with mullet. So we uh, cure and smoke it as if you would like a piece of pork or something like that. We treat it with the same respect as you would any other protein and then we render it off in a pan and we make a carbonara completely traditional, no cream ever, um, and we do it with a local pecorino made by Deb Allard. We use it with um, Tasmanian pepper that is um, grown in the area, or if we can't get that, we use pepper from Piconi Exotics, which is like a farm up here, and he does his own black pepper, um, and we do a completely seafood carbonara. So, And because of the way we've handled that mullet, it tastes so like the real thing it doesn't taste like a fishy seafood carbonara we're not using sea urchin so it has this you know amazing salinity and oceanic flavor It, it has a meaty flavor so we we sometimes don't tell people that it's a seafood carbonara and they eat it and go wow that's amazing you're like that's completely pescatarian um and they're shocked and amazed and then you know it goes beyond that and then we instead of doing preserved lemon we do preserved desert limes just little, you know, simple techniques that you would associate with, you know, Italian or Mediterranean cuisine, you can very easily impart them onto native ingredients or local ingredients that are of, you know, Asian descent, but grown by by Boonluck without it seeming too disrespectful.
1: <laughs> A little earlier, you mentioned that uh, there's been many restaurants thinking that comfort food will be the key to moving forward post-COVID. And- the experience you've had is that people really want to live their best lives as soon as possible, and they they want the truffles and all the things that they were missing out on in life. Where do you see the finer dining sort of side of the industry in the next couple of years?
0: Oh, look, the next couple of years are going to be tough, aren't they? Like, I don't think we've really seen the full brunt of the uh, aftermath of of this epidemic. I don't think I don't think we've really seen you know, the full effect on our industry. I think that's that's still definitely coming. I think there'll be some operators that are hanging on, you know, through a job keeper or other things like that. And the full realities will kick in, you know, when life sort of starts opening back up again or this second wave, especially in Victoria. Um, I think we haven't really seen the full effect yet. You know, we're just getting the, the start of it now. But Look, I think fine dining will always be there. There will always be a sense of occasion around quality restaurants. I think a lot of restaurants tried to be fine dining that necessarily didn't execute it very well. Um, just had lots of tablecloths and people in suits, but didn't really necessarily offer an experience above, you know, a casual restaurant. They just sort of had a fancier surrounding. Um, that isn't fine dining like true fine dining restaurants, I think there'll always be a part for those they 'll always be the people that really want to splurge and they 'll always be the people that want to just feel that like it's, a, it's a, just a feeling you have when you 're in a, a restaurant and you can you just the, the rest of the world disappears like you sit down at a table at key or you know at one of those at, at another top top restaurant and all of a sudden the world doesn't exist anymore only what's around you it's a fully immersive experience and that will always have a place um i think there is an, a need for you know so many of them um who who perhaps don't execute it as well um and those restaurants will probably be the ones that fall by the wayside but um the mid-tier i think is where australia has has already i suppose made its name is that you know perhaps a casual restaurant with exceptional food. I think, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are doing that exceptionally well where you will get, you know, three Mission star or two Mission star trained chefs um, executing food of an exceptional standard just with a very casual setting. Um, I think that's what Australia's food scene is um, in- in internationally recognised for now. But look, there'll always be that top tier. There always needs to be that top tier because 90% of the time that's where that's where the inspiration comes from. Like that's where little chefs dream of of working for, you know, like if you take that away, you take away the future of the industry. So it's always going to be there.
1: A little earlier you mentioned that although there's been some tough experiences, it's not all been bad. What's What's been the positives that you can take out of this period of time?
0: Oh, look, I think a, a chance that, you know, I've never spoken to a chef, an ambitious chef, that that takes time off and, you know, stops. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, so I think it's a forced break, um, especially for chefs that aren't uh, business owners. I'm sure business owners have had their hands full throughout this as well. But um, I think it's just a time to stop and look at this industry as a whole. And hopefully we can take what's working and move it forward and look at what isn't working in this industry. Like, you know, people have been talking about it for years. Um, I think this last sort of four or five months has only amplified the things that aren't work. Like a business shouldn't have to close in a day and then literally already be broke. Like like why are we running businesses that, that don't have any cushion to sort of Get you through that next week or two to, to sort of until you know something comes along like i think as a whole i really do hope this country can look at the industry and you know governments slash other bodies and all that can look at this industry and and see it for how important it actually is it is you know it's like there's a lot of other important industries but where do those industries go they go to restaurants Like restaurants are the meeting places that's the that's where life happens um you know some of your best memories are created in restaurants or your best moments in life are celebrated in restaurants you know you 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 need them they're they're part of our culture so i really hope that we can work out a way to make it a more sustainable and viable uh industry and uh future for people because there's some incredible talent that, you know, may never get the opportunity to own a restaurant because of the challenges that you face not only opening and setting up a restaurant and the costs it takes but the risk in running it like on a day-to-day basis. It's just been amplified at the moment, hasn't it?
1: You're absolutely right and um, what you said about memories, you know, restaurants are just so wonderful for creating those and and as you know, when you're at your time at Russo and Russo, you created some memories for my wife and I. As we live around the corner, it was we had some extraordinary meals there. Um, mate, it's so good to hear you doing um, well up there at Ray's and um, really loved having you on the program today. Uh, keep in touch and um, hopefully I get out of this freezing cold Canberra, it was minus five this morning, soon and up there where the sunshine is and enjoy your food
0: again I hope so too minus 5 sounds horrible it's been I think 23, 24 today <laughs> I was at the beach but I won't rub that in thank um, you I'd love to see you again <laughs>
1: um, thanks Jason talk soon
0: cheers Huck speak, speak soon mate see ya
1: this is the Deep in the Weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen Follow us on Instagram at DeepinTheweeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepentheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.